We've got much to consider in the Word of God this morning, so as you make your way back, remember from Genesis chapter 37 that Joseph had two dreams. You remember those dreams that Joseph had? It was a revealing of what was to come in Joseph's life. And you remember that before that, his brothers didn't like him. They gave a bad report of him to their father, of them to their father. They hated him, they hated him, they became jealous. But those dreams that Joseph had, you remember, were given to him by God. And he held on to those dreams. So we keep these things in mind and we turn to Genesis chapter 39. And as we keep those things in mind and as we turn to Genesis 39 and we read together and study, we want to find out what God has to teach us from this chapter. So let's read together Genesis chapter 39, verse 1. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He's not greater in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house were there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, see, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came into me to lie with me and I cried with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came into me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, This is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Father, we thank you for your word, and Lord, we thank you for the time we have 
Lord, there's so much to consider. We pray that you would enable us to hear, to understand, to apply, to be changed into the image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in his name, amen. Well, so again, we're here to learn what God has to say to us from chapter 39 of Genesis, how he wants us to grow. What I want to make sure that we don't do is just right off the bat in our minds, make the mistake that many people make when they read this. They think, Joseph had dreams, he had goals, and he worked really hard. He believed in those dreams, so eventually God rewarded him by making his dreams come true. That's not what's happening. It's not a good understanding of why we have this account of Joseph. What is the lesson? Now, part of me wants to just go through chapter 39 and and go through chapter 40 and 41 and 40, all the way to the end of Genesis, chapter 50, is all about Joseph's life, and and I want to keep it to the end because that's where the lesson is twice towards the end. But this whole unit from chapters 37 to 50 of Genesis are really meant to be read as a whole unit. And the lesson comes at the end and then is repeated at the, bar- at the very end so that we'll remember the overall lesson that we're supposed to be getting from Joseph's life's account. It's given twice at the end. Now, we have these chapter breaks that are not inspired, but we're working systematically through his life, and they're a nice break for us to learn some intermediate lessons. But the whole lesson is meant to, to communicate one overall lesson. And if we miss it, we misuse God's Word. So, this is not a unit that teaches you to believe in your dreams and they will come true. It's not a unit that teaches you to work really hard and have faith and then God will reward you. It is not a story about a man who becomes an example of perseverance and and being a good person and forgiveness, which we will see throughout his life and at the end. The point, the whole unit of his life points to is in chapter 45, verse 5. You can turn there if you want, holding your place here, but this is what it says. As Joseph became reunited with his brothers, he told them, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. He says, look, this this famine's got five more years left. It's seven years. We've we've got five to go. Verse 7, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep you alive, to keep alive for you many survivors. And here's what he says, it was not you who sent me, but God. God sent me here. And every part of this account of Joseph's life is going to point directly to this idea that this is all God's work. Every bit of what happens points directly to God and is like the spokes on a wheel, on a hub of a wheel. Every point of Joseph's life is going to point directly back to this idea that God is in control, that he's running all of this. Later in chapter 50, after Jacob dies, the brothers all come to Joseph and they're like, okay, please forgive us. Dad said forgive us, so we really hope that you will. Joseph said in chapter 50, verse 19, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? I mean, can I do anything to you guys? God's done all of this. I can't do anything against you now. Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me. I mean, let's let's call it what it is, right? Let's be real about what happened. But God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. It's all about God fulfilling His Word, fulfilling His purposes, His promises, His will, 
The whole point of the account of Joseph's life is all about God, his goodness, his sovereignty, his wisdom. It's all about his promises being made and promises being kept. And part of his promise is that the promised land will be yours. Even though they're all down, they're all going to move down to Egypt, you're going to come back. Part of the promise is that the seed is going to continue. There's going to be many seeds, many offspring, but the one seed is still to come. That part has not yet been fulfilled, but it will be. And the blessings upon the whole earth will be through that. That's the point, the idea, the message, the moral, the lesson for Joseph's life. God is good and faithful. He is wise and sovereign. God is God. He's good and he's true to his word. Now, some of you are like me and you like memory help, helps. And so I came up with this, and if you don't like this, then just forget it and, and ignore it and just don't worry about it. But if it helps you, then praise God. And, and this is what I came up with. This is all about the swag of the flag. Like, what? <laughs> it's all about the sovereignty, the wisdom, and the goodness of the faithful, loving, uh, living, almighty God. The swag of the flag, the sovereignty, wisdom, and goodness of the faithful, living, almighty God. That's what this is about. And each part of Joseph's life is going to play a part in that larger lesson that's to be arranged underneath that, that overarching message and lesson. Now, what we do learn from Joseph, and especially here in chapter 39, is the proper response to the swag of the flag, <laughs> to who God is. He becomes an example for us to respond to God and believe in Him, not an example for believing our dreams and making them come true, but believe in God, what He's doing. The dreams that Joseph had were not his own. They were given to him by God to show him what was coming. So what Joseph had to go on in his life was the promises that he was taught from his father Jacob because of God's word promised and, and given to Jacob from Isaac, given to him from his father Abraham, what God had said, and then these dreams that say this is how it's going to happen. And God's word, God's plan was so real to Joseph that nothing in life shook that belief in God, in his word, in his promises. Now, he wasn't sinless. He wasn't perfect. There had to be times where he was just in utter despair before God. But we don't see it. Because it's all about God and what he's doing, Joseph is just here to show us how to properly respond. And so there are three stages to Joseph's response to God. So remember that in chapter 37, he went from his, his parent to the pit. Here he has gone from the pit to Potiphar. We're also going to see him go from Potiphar back to the pit in prison. It's going to be perfect. <laughs> Just like we see so often in life, things are kind of good and then they get bad. And then they kind of get a little bit better, but then they get worse. And then they kind of get good again and then they get bad. And things are just, this is an accurate picture of life from Joseph. But it's a lesson in how to respond to God in a life like this. Nothing's accidental. It's always purposeful from God. So the first stage in his in this uh, chapter, number one, is that Joseph lives for the Lord as a faithful slave. A faithful slave, verses 1 to 6. Joseph was sold as a slave to Potiphar. Now, let's not gloss over that in Joseph's life, and, because we want to really rush to the end and talk about all the good that happened to Joseph and for Joseph. But that's not really how life is for Joseph or for us. Joseph is a slave now. It's not a popular or nice word. He's a slave, and nobody knows him in this place as anything but a refugee slave. There's no path to freedom. 
as a slave in Egypt. Joseph has no way that he can see that he's now going to get out of slavery, except that he's got God, God's word. God's word stands. But not only is he a slave, he's, a, he's sold into slavery to Potiphar. Now, in case we don't know, he's an Egyptian. The Bible tells us that. He's a very high-ranking Egyptian. He's loyal to Egypt, the, the, loyal to the government of Egypt, to the, the king, the pharaoh of Egypt, even to the religion itself, the religion of Egypt. His name, Potiphar, means the one given by Re, the, the, the Egyptian god Re, who was the one who created all the other gods mythologi- in, the, in the Egyptian mythology. He's the one who made all of the other gods and brought into existence all of the world. So in other words, this man Potiphar is, is Egyptian to the core. I mean, he's all about Egypt, Egypt, the religion, the culture, the language, with all the riches and power and sin and idolatry that came with that. That's who Joseph is working for now. That's his boss, his master. So Joseph is now in the most powerful nation in the world, a pagan nation, working directly for the captain of the most powerful army in the world at the time, the idolatrous pagan officer of Pharaoh himself, Potiphar. And there's no hope of freedom. Or even for a decent life for Joseph at this point. He's got to learn a new language, a new culture, a new government. Now tell me, how bleak would life look to you at this point? What would you do? What would you be like? I can imagine bitterness. I can imagine vengefulness. You know, if I ever get my hands on those guys again, you know, not calling them my brothers, I can't stand them. If I ever get my hands on those guys, they're going to get what's coming to them. I can imagine some rebelliousness, some fighting against his circumstances, struggling against life. I can imagine some depression with the situation. But God's word stands, and it stands in his mind. So Joseph responds to life by living for the Lord as a slave. And there's nothing he can hold his hope on to other than that word of God, the promise of God. You notice at no time does an angel come to Joseph and say, hold on, it's coming God doesn't make an appearance to Joseph in jail or, or in, uh, in his slavery and say, I've got better things for you, just hold on. All he has is the word of God given to him in the past. And he holds on to that strongly. Joseph, are you going to believe what God says or are you not going to believe it? Remember, as we've seen over and over, it doesn't really matter whether we believe. God's plan will happen. God's promises will come about. He keeps his promises even if you lie about who your wife is and she gets taken from you. God gets her back for you as it happened for Abraham and Isaac. Even if the entire planet grows corrupt with sin, God still has a plan and it goes forward. God's plan continues. So Joseph holds on to the word of God, responding by living for the Lord even as a hopeless slave. Verse 2 states the fact for us. The Lord was with Joseph. You say, how? How's the Lord going to fulfill his word at this point? Maybe there's a glimmer of hope in verse 2. He became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. Okay, so he's got some success, right? Things are starting to look up for Joseph. Now, let's think about this again. He's a slave. (laughs) There's success in what he's doing But it's success as a slave. The end of that is not throwaway. He was in the house of his Egyptian master, and he becomes the personal attendant of Potiphar. There's success, but not the kind of success that Joseph was hoping for, right? Joseph was was given dreams that he's going to rule, that people are going to bow before him, that he's going to be in charge, not that he's going to be a successful slave. But he's not deterred. He lives and he serves faithfully. Now look at verse 3. 
His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed. How would the idol-worshipping, false god-loyal Potiphar know that it was Yahweh, God, who was making everything successful? Well, because he had to see the work of the Lord through Joseph, and Joseph would have had to tell him, right? There's no other way for Potiphar to know that this was Yahweh, the Lord, unless Joseph told him. So Joseph is living for the Lord, and he's speaking the Lord, even in, even in terrible circumstances of being a slave. And there's no other reason given for his success by Joseph except that God was doing it through him. It's not because Joseph was an expert in management skills, so we need to learn from Joseph. It wasn't because Joseph has implemented all the contemporary leadership theories and read all of the books and, and you know, let's follow Joseph's example in this. No, Joseph's example is that he's doing what he's supposed to be doing as a slave, living for the Lord. How does Potiphar respond? He promotes Joseph. Now he's the overseer. Joseph is in charge of everything Potiphar has, which includes all the other slaves. Now some say, well, see, God is rewarding Joseph for faithfulness. And imagine thinking that Joseph is being rewarded for faithfulness as a slave because now he's got even more responsibility. (laughs) He's in charge of other slaves who don't really have the same promises of God to motivate their lives. He's got all of the responsibility for everything. There's no increase in pay. There's no promise of freedom. Well, you know, congratulations, you've learned, you've earned freedom. No, this just, now you're a slave and now you've got more to do. <laughs> There's no extra pay. And not only that, all of the credit doesn't go to Joseph. It rightly goes to God. All of the blessing of the Lord was on all that Potiphar had in house and field. No matter what happened anywhere else, Potiphar was getting blessed because of Joseph being there, and the Lord with Joseph. Cap it all off in verse 6, Potiphar just stops doing anything at all. (laughs) You take it all. You do all of the work, Joseph. The only thing he doesn't worry about is his own food, because probably, as we find out later, it's an abomination for Egyptians to eat with Hebrews. So he's like, I'll take care of my own food, but you've got everything else. What do we see Joseph getting out of this deal? Nothing. Earthly speaking, I mean, how does he go on with his life like this? The Lord is with him. How does he know that? Because he has the word of the Lord. He remembers what God has said, and he falls back on that. And he sees inexplicable success for his master at his hands. Now, can you imagine life going like this for you, brother or sister? You and I don't even have promises that, you know, our, our family's going to bow down to us later on or that, you know, that we have those kinds of things. We have, though, many more and longer-lasting eternal promises from God. He promises that He's going, that He will never leave us, that He will never forsake us, brother, sister. Verse 2 says, the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with John. Steve, Cindy, Debbie, through all that came in your life, through all that comes in your life, the Lord was with you. The Lord is with you, believer, the faithful, living, almighty God. How do you respond? How do we respond to that truth? When Jesus says, I will never leave you or forsake you, I'm going to be with you forever, do we respond like Joseph does, holding firmly to those promises of God? Even if you had nothing else from God, You had the promise that He has saved you, that He's going to come back for you, and He's with you now. Is that enough for you? 
Is that enough of a promise from God, no matter what else happens, that you respond to Him with faithfulness? Whatever comes along in life, even if you're sold into slavery and you get more and more and more work to do and you never get any thanks, you never get any kind of freedom and your non-believing master benefits hand over fist from everything you do. Or in your life right now, do you hold on to God's promises? Do you hold on to Him, holding fast to Him, steadfastly holding on to Him, even when your football team doesn't win? (laughs) Even when your car doesn't work right? Even when you're sick? Even when that diagnosis from the doctor comes? From the little things to the big things that seem to just shake us and move us and make us worry and anxious and stressed and wonder and worry and... Am I holding on to God's promises like Joseph does here? If not, we have some work to do in strengthening the faith that God has so graciously given us. You have 1 Corinthians 7, verses 17 to 24 in your notes. I encourage you to read those, study those verses about living the life that God's given you for today. Are you a Jew? Are you a Gentile? Are you a slave? Are you free? If you're free, well, remember you're a slave to Christ. Are you a slave? Remember that in Christ you are free. Live for Him. Well, as if all of that isn't enough for Joseph, verse 6 sets him up for some unwelcome trouble. He's he's handsome in form and appearance. The word is beautiful in form and appearance. Like, if you look at him from the outside, you think, wow. And if you get up close to him and you look at, look at all of that he is and all that he looks like, he's, the word here is just beautiful. He's a beautiful man. I'm not sure I know what that means, but <laughs> that's what it tells us. But unfortunately, it sets up temptation for the second stage. Number two, verses seven to 20, we see that Joseph lives for the Lord by fighting temptation. He's fighting temptation here. What becomes obvious over the course of this narrative is that Potiphar never is around anymore. He takes, he's just never around. Look, man, Joseph's got it all. I'm going to go do everything I want to do. What begins to happen is that his wife notices Joseph. She cast her eyes on Joseph. And we see here the progression of sin that is the same within us that it was within his, Potiphar's wife, that's the same within any person who's ever lived because of sin, the problem in our heart. I see something, I want it, I decide that I really want it so that I desire it, and then I demand it. I demand I must get this. I convince myself that I need it, and I come to expect it. And if I don't get it, then I'm disappointed and I start punishing other people. Or if I do get it, it's not fulfilling, so I get disappointed and I start punishing people or myself. That happens, that that progression that we've gone through together before happens within each one of us when we fall for temptation and sin or when we fall for it and don't get it, we desire, we demand, we need it and we expect it. That happens here. She comes to Joseph and says, lie with me. And that doesn't seem very subtle, does it? Where's the temptation? She comes right out and invites him, but temptation doesn't usually come to us in the form of evil, right? Come on, let's go sin together. Let's go commit adultery. That's not how she comes. It's lie with me. And to Joseph, that might sound pleasurable. What's he gotten out of anything that he's been doing? What's, what's come to him from all the work that he's had, that, that he's been doing? It probably would be beneficial to his status. She's, she's well-connected, as Potiphar's wife? Shouldn't he get something out of all of his work? Potiphar's not around. He never is. He doesn't pay attention even when he is around. 
It's all delegated to Joseph. In fact, everything is Joseph's except Potiphar's wife. Why not her too? The servants aren't going to say anything. He's in charge of them. She's more than willing. It's her idea. It could be flattering and ego-building for Joseph. It could just be so convenient and so easy. Why wouldn't he? For the same reasons that we just went through. The same reasons that another person may give for giving in, Joseph says, no, that's the reason that I won't. He refuses, verse 8 says. Why? Look, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything. Everything's on me. The whole thing would fall apart if I lost that trust. The whole thing's gone. Even more important is the question at the end of verse 9, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Even though the sin would be against Potiphar, it would be against Potiphar's wife, it would be against his own body. 1 Corinthians 6 teaches that sexual sins are even against our own bodies. His biggest concern is that his sin would be against God. All sin is ultimately against God. You can't sin against other people and think, well, you know, at least I haven't done anything against God. No, every sin that we commit is against God. When we sin against His image bearers, when we don't love them as He's commanded us to love them, when we don't love Him as He's commanded us to love Him, and this, wouldn't, this would be ultimately against God, and it wouldn't be just no big deal, it would be great wickedness because Joseph had been taught Marriage is between one man and one woman, and intimacy only happens in that marriage, that man and woman coming together. Joseph is not looking at the pleasure and the benefits promised by the temptation to sin. He's not looking at what he can get out of this situation. He doesn't get fooled by the deceitfulness of sin. When temptation comes, brothers and sisters, we could almost set up like an Excel spreadsheet (laughs) with a column for pros and a column for cons. Here's all the things that I think I'm going to get out of this, and here's all the stuff that says this is why I shouldn't do this. We could look at it that way. The the trouble is we don't want to do that. We just want to look at this pro column. I want what I want, and look at all the stuff that I'm going to get out of this. Look how it's going to benefit me. Look, Look how pleasurable it's going to be. Rarely ever do we look over at the other column and see all of the cons that are listed there. Joseph looks to that side. He sees the ugliness of sin for what it is. It's twisted treachery against Potiphar. Even more, it's twisted treachery against the faithful, living, almighty God. Sin brings disease. It severs and destroys relationships, primarily between us and God, but also all the time with other people. It breaks trust, it brings estrangement from fellowship with God and others, it brings death. Uh, You've got Proverbs chapters 5 through 7 to read about even more specific warnings about adultery, how it doesn't work out the way that people think it will. To Joseph and his example for us is that it doesn't matter how many benefits get piled up in this column, everything that's in this column says, don't do it, get away from it. It doesn't matter what anybody says To him, it doesn't matter what he thinks he sees. Joseph remembers God's word about marriage, and he operates on that. It's impossible to shake him in this account into sinning. It needs to be impossible to shake us from sinning because we have the whole word of God. We have been, according to 1 John 3, we've been born of God, so now we cannot sin. We can't continue in sin. It's got to be that important to us, that that impactful in our minds and our hearts, that we can't sin. I'm, I could, there's no way I could. 
Now, of course, she didn't see it that way. She saw what she wanted, and so she pursued day after day after day, constantly trying to talk Joseph into it. And she was increasing the temptation in subtle ways. Now, we don't know everything that she did. I mean, maybe there were visual things. Maybe there were other things that she was saying. But we know from verse 10 that she was trying to chip away just a little at a time. Just lie next to me. We won't do anything. Just lie next to me. Okay, you're still refusing. Just... You know, be with me. Just don't leave the room every time I come in. Just, just a little bit at a time. Just be with me. And he still would not listen. Never would Joseph play any games with sin. Skirting around the edge. Well, I'll just give in a little bit here. But I won't go all the way. I'll do a little bit. He kept back away from it. Until that day that he was inside. And we don't know if it was, if it was that he looked around to make sure that nobody was in there. And he didn't see her. So he started his work. We don't know that if, if he was just a little naive and focused on his work and didn't see that nobody else was around except Potiphar's wife, it's a good warning not to be naive about sin, to be careful. But even though he was standing strong, she could stand it no longer. She grabbed him by the clothes and she said, I'm going to force this issue. But he ran. He did the right thing. The New Testament tell, you know, teaches us and tells us, flee youthful lusts. Make no provision for the flesh for sin. That's what Joseph did. But to get away, he left his garment. His outer robe, his layer of clothing. So now for a second time in Joseph's life, he's lost his outward clothing because of sin, but not his own. He lost his robe of many colors or long-sleeved robe, however you translate that in in Hebrew. His, His coat of many colors was taken away from him as he was sold into slavery. And now his garment is taken away as he escapes temptation and sin. But in that moment, Potiphar's wife is rejected for a final time, and she lets out this scream of frustration. She stood there with his clothing. Her passion for lust in false love has been turned into passion for punishment and true hatred. So she came up with a plan that fast, just in that instant. She accused him of doing what she had been doing. It's his word against, it's his word against hers, and he's a foreign slave, right? She says in verse 14, he came to laugh at us, to lie with me. She says in verse 17, he came to laugh at me. That, that word means to play game, to, to sport around with, um, to play around with and laugh at us as, as simple and ridiculous. He's scorning us like Ishmael did to Isaac, which got him removed from the family. You remember that? Like what the people of Sodom said about Lot, that he's not taking us seriously and he's ridiculing us. Even though Joseph did everything he could not to play around with sin, she accuses him of that very thing. And you have 1 Peter 2, verses 18 to 21 in your notes. Again, read these verses and, and, and be reminded about how we are entrusting everything to him who, does, who judges justly. There's injustice, the injustice that happens in this world, and it happens to us. I shouldn't be suffering like this. Things like this shouldn't be happening to me. I don't deserve this. I didn't earn this. But we suffer rightly for God, trusting him as Jesus did as Joseph does here. The source of blame, according to Potiphar's wife, is Potiphar himself, the one that you brought in here. You brought this guy in here, this, this slave, this Hebrew slave. The servants bought the story. Apparently, Potiphar buys the story, but maybe not fully. Maybe not fully, because he, he gets home and he's angry. Verse, verse 19 is very vivid in the Hebrew. He, 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 his anger was kindled. It, me, it means he burned with anger. It's that hot, sudden explosion of anger. You just blow up, right? You lose your temper and just, oh, I go crazy. 
something sets you off immediately. The, the original refers actually to his nose. Like, like his nose, is, his nostrils are flaring, right? He's so angry. He, he's, he's set off and, and, and his face is red and he's fuming mad. But it doesn't say his anger was at Joseph. He's angry, but maybe he understands that yeah, this probably wasn't Joseph. This was, this was probably my wife that was doing all of this. The expected punishment should be execution. And, and if Potiphar set off an anger like this, he should just immediately execute him, but instead he throws him into prison. So that's where we get the idea that, well, he's, he's upset probably because he's losing his faithful servant, his faithful slave Joseph, but not because of probably that he believes the charge. Whatever it was in verse 20, the effect is that Joseph is now in prison where the king's prisoners are confined. What was that like? There's an unusual word here that's used for prison. It refers to a round building, like a fortress. And it's known that prisoners in ancient Egypt would be sent out to defensive posts to serve as forced labor. If you were going to have an outpost where it would be either like your first defense against an invading army, why not put people out there that you know are going to just be crushed? <laughs> why not put prisoners out there to work and to guard them? Because prisoner, prison was not a place where you just sat like it is today. <laughs> it was forced labor. You, you were working. And of all places, Psalm 105 gives us more insight into what things were like for Joseph in prison. Psalm 105, verse 18 says, His feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron. You might think that this is a giant step backwards in his life, right? <laughs> so much for faithfulness to God. Look where it's gotten me. I would be tempted to think. <laughs> God said, this is what's going to happen. I believed him, and then I got sold into slavery. Things started to get a little bit better, but now I'm in prison. I've got chains on my neck and around my feet. Verse 20 says, and he was there in prison, referring to some time that passes. So Jacob, <laughs> Joseph has lived his life with all of its troubles for the Lord as a faithful slave and now while fighting temptation. But number three, the third stage, Joseph continues to live for the Lord. Joseph lives for the Lord as a favored steward. In verses 21 to 23, again, he keeps going with his life. He, he's worse off now than he was before. It's never been worse for Joseph than it is at this moment. And we don't know how long he was there. But chapter 37, verse 2 said he was 17 years old when he uh, gave the bad report of his brothers to their father. Chapter 41, verse 46 says that he's going to be 30 years old when he stands before Pharaoh and begins service there. If you've read ahead, you know what that means. So maybe there was a, up to a year between giving the bad report and Joseph being sold into slavery. We don't know, but it's at least 12 to 13 years that he's serving as a slave and then as a prisoner. And it's just gotten so much worse for him. But as we read, as the days and then the weeks and the months and the years pass, he continues to live for the Lord. And the prison keeper notices. And again, Joseph is in charge. Again, and this may be stating the obvious, but at the risk of that, Joseph doesn't keep getting put in charge because he's got a terrible attitude, <laughs> Right? It's also not because of his shrewd dealings or some kind of business whiz. He's not trying to earn the trust of the guard so that he can escape. He's living genuinely for the Lord through all of this. The, 
the only thing that can explain all of this is the promises of God. Why are these bad things happening to him? I mean, he's faithful to God. Why do they keep happening? Because he's faithful to the Lord. (laughs) Because this is what the Lord has. You know, shouldn't God be blessing him for all of this faithfulness? Shouldn't he be with him and, and just rewarding him? That's what we might think. That would be easy enough for us to fall into. But the key is something we said last week. Joseph knew this. We need to remember that we should not, we do not, we cannot rely on events, circumstances to tell us where we stand before God. It's not a good measure of where we stand before God. Rely on his word and his promises despite everything, the good, the bad, everything in between. I don't care what happens, I'm I'm relying on the Lord. See, this is what it means to make your faith a reality in life. This is where it's not theoretical anymore, right? Am I going to hold to these promises of God or am I I just going to, to lose it? Am I going to just, what's happening, God? Where are you? How come you don't care? And and accuse God of not caring, not knowing, not being there, not loving, not being good. It's easy to say right now, God is sovereign and he's wise and he's good. It's easy to say that. It's easy to say, I believe that. How easy is it when your life starts to look like Joseph's? Joseph isn't looking up at God and saying, you owe me. Look at what I've done, how I've suffered, God. Isn't this enough? No, it's not enough yet. Why? Because God's ways are higher than ours ways, and his thoughts are higher than than ours, and and our thoughts get so wrapped up in us and what's happening to us and, and what this is and what that isn't, and God's working out his plan in all of creation for ultimate good, even our good and his glory. And I'm reading a little book by a Puritan. It's called Keeping Your Keeping the Heart. And I found this nugget in this book this week, and it just, oh, it just gripped me. It grabbed me by the heart and mind. There's so much encouragement in this. This little morsel is so applicable. We look at life and we ask, God, why is this happening? Why is that happening? Why isn't this happening? What's going on? Why all of this stuff, all of this difficulty, and why so much of it? And here's how we can trust the sovereignty, the wisdom, and the goodness of the faithful, living, almighty God. He's so good and he's so wise that the end that he's preparing for us is so good and so perfect. And the way that he's preparing us to be there at the end, that if you were there at the end and you saw the good that God was doing and you had all of the goodness and the wisdom that God has, you would do the same things for yourself that are happening to you now. That's how good and wise God is. You would choose to go through the same difficulties because you would see at the end what God has been doing all along through them. And to me, it just blew my mind this week. You know, I've said before, God, I wouldn't have chosen this, but you did. I guess I would have if I was as good and as wise as God is. Why can't we avoid suffering in this place? It's a little simplistic. You've got three points there that are hopefully helpful. The first, first idea is that God has other better plans. <laughs> God has other and better and bigger plans than, wait, than my happiness? Than getting what I want? <laughs> Much bigger. You have there in your notes 1 Corinthians 11.36. There is no 1 Corinthians 11.36. <laughs> so don't turn there. Scratch out 1 Corinthians and make it Romans. That was my fault in the notes there. Romans 11.36, it says, from him, through him, and to him are all things, to him be glory forever. Amen. 
I'm not sure that's what I really want. Well, that's a good first step to confess that. And then we pray, Matthew 6, 10, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, Father. We need to be praying that, submitting to his will constantly. So that's one reason. A second reason is that you live in a sin-cursed world. I don't know if you knew this. <laughs> this world isn't perfect. <laughs> you did know that, didn't you? You live in a sin-cursed world. The blessings that you have in Jesus, we read them this morning, um, uh, just right before we, we started singing as worship. Ephesians 1, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Thank you, Trevor, for reading that whole chapter for us. All of Jesus' blessings become real and true and magnified in abundance in our obedience, but you're still here in this world, which is under the curse of sin and its consequences. Jesus said in John 16, in this world, you will have trouble. That's what's going to happen in this world. Things aren't going to be perfect here. Of course they're not. They're going to be perfect in heaven. That's why we look forward to it. That's why we want to go. A third reason is that you still have your flesh. You still have your flesh, and flesh cannot inherit the fullness of all of God's blessings. That's why those blessings are in the heavenly places. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. We'll inherit the fullness of every blessing that we already have. We'll inherit and experience that when we're no longer flesh and blood on this earth. Uh, this could probably and probably should be an entire message, but obedience, faithfulness to God does bring blessings for ourselves, for those around us, for the rest of the world, but rarely does it come in the form that we anticipate or expect or want, material blessings. Instead, I point you again to 1 Peter 4.19, let those who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to the faithful creator while still doing good being faithful to him. Was, when Joseph was thrown into prison, was, he, was God absent? No, he was there. Look what God gave Joseph instead, and I just realized how late this is. God gave him his presence and his steadfast love, and then he gave him success. You've got in your notes Hebrews 13 to read about the presence of God. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. He can make me suffer, he can, make, he can push me down, he can stamp me down, he can, he can take my life God, if God allows it. But I've got the presence of God. And, and this isn't to minimize what any of us are going through, but if God was there with Joseph through all of this, he can be there for us in all that we go through. What about his steadfast love, the love that never fails, the loyal love that we never deserve but is, is completely given to us by God himself in abundance because he never fails? Psalm 136 tells us 26 times his steadfast love endures forever. 1 John 4 teaches us about God's love in Jesus Christ. So what's so special about Joseph? Well, his God. Why did Joseph get success in Potiphar's house? Because of God. Why was he a slave? Why was he thrown in prison? Because it was God. His plan, it's part of what he was doing. When it was all revealed at the end, Joseph endured all of that to save the very men who sold him into slavery. That's what Jesus did for us. As he came as one of us, he came to save the ones who sinned against him and who put him on that cross. Our application you've got on the back of your sheet there, to live the life that God has given you for him. 
God's given you this life. God's brought into your life the things that are happening. He, he's kept from your life the things that haven't come into your life. And, and we can either blame God and we can say, God, how come and why not? And, and I don't understand. And we may not. That's okay to cry out to him and say, I don't understand. But it's the faith that he gives us that allows us to say, I don't understand, but you do. You are good. So consider these questions. What circumstances in life can you not change? that do or could cause you to be depressed or angry. Think negatively about all of life. What does your response to God need to be in light of His Word? How will you correct that or improve that? There are some example answers there. These are not exhaustive, but just to get you started, to get you thinking. Number two, what temptations do you need to overcome by God's grace? How can you change things around you so that you don't have to, uh, to face them, or how can you be prepared to better face them? Again, some more examples. And then what blessings have you received from God? Thank Him for them specifically. Start with that. What blessings have you not received from God? You know, God, I was looking for this. I was wanting that. I was hoping for this. And none of it came about. Okay, let's look at those. Why do you think you did not receive them? Some possible reasons are here. Just to get us started. Unconfessed sin or disobedience. Maybe they were wrong expectations to begin with. Maybe they were good things, but I wanted them so much I replaced God with these idols. Maybe I've forgotten all of God's actual blessings. <laughs> Maybe God's got it for me still, just not yet. Brothers and sisters, this is the life of Joseph lived as a response to God because of all that God has done and is doing. And I hope that this is an encouragement to you Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace, your goodness. Lord, thank you that you are so sovereign and wise and good. Lord, you are the faithful, living, and almighty God. I pray, Lord, that that would be real in our hearts and minds, that we would live that out in truth because of our love for you. We thank you for our Savior, Jesus, who allows, enables, empowers that in his name. Amen.